and turn our attention to, to God's Word from 1 Corinthians. This is going to be our second message in a new sermon series. This is called 1 Corinthians, A Roadmap for Raw Christians. And we called it A Roadmap for Raw Christians because it's the Apostle Paul showing a, a bunch of new believers who are not only spiritually immature, but they're also morally unrefined, and they're coming out of a culture that is steeped in idolatry and, and immorality, and he shows them, look, here you are at point A, I want to give you a roadmap and, and get you over here to point B, a, a mature follower of Jesus Christ. So this is our, our second sermon in the series, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 17. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 17, on page 952 of the ESV Pew Bibles. I remember we're taking 1 Corinthians at a little bit slower pace than we normally would. We usually tended to take about a chapter a Sunday. We're going to slow it down a little bit through 1 Corinthians because there's just so much here. And we want to give it a, a fair treatment uh, and just take a slower pace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we first of all ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We know that you are the one that gives eyes to see and ears to hear. We, we know that you are the one that, that teaches us ultimately the true meaning of, of, your, of your word. So we ask for insight. We ask for illumination. We pray for understanding. And then, Father, we also ask that we not simply let this word wash over us and then we leave here and, and forget what was said and, and proclaimed, but instead we ask that you would allow your spirit to work it deep into our hearts so that we're changed, so that this becomes part of the sanctification process that you call us all to, that this would be used to, to grow us and become more Christ-like. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There was a new teacher that was fresh out of college, had never taught before. She, she had her first position teaching seventh grade at a school, and it was September, so she was getting to know the other faculty members, and in particular, she was getting to know the other seventh grade teachers. There were two other teachers in her grade level, and, and one was, was only you know, a couple of years older than she was, and, and she saw her more of as, as a peer and a friend. But the other teacher was, was much older and more experienced, and, and so she was kind of hoping that, that that teacher might be a mentor for her. And so they were meeting after school one day. They, they met in the older teacher's office, and they, they went to her desk, and they were going to spend some time collaborating and planning. And the, the older teacher said, I have to run to the office for just a minute. And so the younger teacher had just a couple of minutes by herself, and she looked over the desk, and she saw, you know, papers that needed to be graded. She saw a couple personal items. And then she saw, um, you know, gifts from a student at Apple with her, her name on it. And, and then over in the corner, she saw a, a little sign framed, uh, like a little plaque with a saying on it. And it said, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the new teacher thought, yeah, I, I like the sound of that. I, I think she might be a good mentor for me because that, that sounds good to me. She said, it seems like if, if you adopt that principle and that mindset, then you stay focused and, and, and less likely to get distracted by the little things and the things that aren't the main things. I, I like that. 
And then about another second went by and she thought, what's the main thing? Or I, I wonder what this teacher thinks the main thing is. I'm going to have to ask her when she gets back. In 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 17, Paul redirects his readers back to the main thing. Because this church had lost sight of it. Uh, Paul was in Corinth for about a year and a half, and then he left. And within a very short span of time, relatively short span of time, no more than about two years, they had left. They had forgotten the main thing. They had become distracted by other things. Divisions had formed in particular, and they had formed around these various teachers, people who had come to Corinth and had brought teaching to this church. They, they were developing these, these subgroups in the church, these little, little cliques of people that were, were, were gathering around these, these personalities, these people. And the problem, according to Paul, was that in doing this, they were acting like unbelievers. That was the issue. They were, they were valuing and placing importance on things that the world values and, and that the world places importance upon. They failed to keep the main thing, the main thing. So Paul brings correction. He calls them to stop these divisions based on, on these criteria, these, these, this worldly criteria, and he calls them back to the main thing. And that main thing, of course, is Jesus Christ, the gospel, and biblical truth. Paul calls them back to that. Now, I want to read this, this passage, and we're going to hear the problem described, the divisions and we're also going to hear his call or summons back to the main thing. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In ancient rhetoric, sometimes the speaker would open up with some praise to his listeners. And the idea was that if, if the speaker spent just a few moments at the beginning kind of flattering and, and pumping up his, 
his listeners, then they'll be in a good mood and, and more prone to, to be open to whatever the speaker had to say. Paul is not doing that in this opening. He is expressing thankfulness, but he's expressing thankfulness for the believers in Corinth, and that thankfulness is ultimately thanks and praise directed towards God, not them. It says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So this is not artificial praise from Paul. This is Paul accomplishing a couple different things. Number one, he's expressing genuine care for the sheep that God has entrusted to him with. These are people, this church had been given to him by Jesus Christ and he is going to be accountable for these people. And so he is expressing genuine care for them. Despite all the things that these raw Christians are doing wrong, and as we were going through this book, we're going to see they are doing a lot of things wrong. He still loves them. He still loves them and he still cares for them. So that's number one. And number two, he's reminding them of their identity as God's people. And in this sense, this dovetails rather, rather strongly with those opening verses two and three where he reminded them who they were. You are the church. You are called out. You are sanctified. And then Right here in these verses, he's reminding them of their identity as the church. As the people of God, they owe God everything. It's all grace. They're all debtors here. In verses 5 and 7, he says, In every way they were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, so that you're not lacking in any gifts. So Paul acknowledges that they have spiritual gifts. And he reminds them that those gifts are from Jesus Christ. In fact, those gifts, he says, are, are evidence. They give testimony that Christ was confirmed in you. Nothing new here. No surprises. We know that those who are saved, those who are in Christ, receive spiritual gifts from the Spirit of Christ. We understand that. Now, Paul's going to be spending a good chunk of his letter in 1 Corinthians dealing with the issue of spiritual gifts what their intended use is, what they're for, what they're not for. He's going to be delving into that later. So he touches on spiritual gifts here in the opening of his letter. It's kind of like a quiet, whispered introduction of what's going to be coming next. And then in verse 7, the second half, he said, as you wait for revealing, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is Paul reminding the church that there is a finish line to this whole thing. We, we are moving towards something, and it's called the end. He, he says, literally, the end. Uh, when, when Christ returns, when the day of judgment arrives, and, and of course the purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up the church, to, to, to bring these raw Christians to a point of spiritual maturity so they can be presented to Christ, holy and blameless on the day of Christ. But it's God that has brought them into existence as a church, and it's God that is going to continue to sanctify them as a church. And we hear that just kind of emphasized over and over again. It's Jesus that will sustain you to the end. It's Jesus who will sanctify you so that you are guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. It is by God that you are called into the fellowship of his son. So the, the primary emphasis on these opening verses is pointing his listeners towards God. And then in verse 10, we arrive at the first waypoint. Remember that we call this a roadmap. So on the, on the first uh, section of this roadmap, we have a waypoint, and it is divisions in the church. In verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers. Appeal here means a, a call or a summons. 
to be done uh, in an encouraging manner. I appeal to you, brothers, so in one sense he's, he's relating them horizontally, brothers and sisters in Christ. But on the other hand, he is issuing a call and a summons with apostolic authority. We talked about that in depth last week. This is by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, so he's, he's acting with full representational authority of Jesus Christ as an apostle of Jesus. So he's speaking as an apostle. And here's the thing that he's calling them or summoning them to do. That you all agree and there be no divisions among you. Now, of course, he's writing this because there are divisions among them. And we know the nature of these divisions. There were these subgroups, these little splinter groups based on following a different teacher. Paul says, don't do that. Don't, don't be divided for those reasons. Now, we'll, we'll come back and touch on this later, but right now I think it's worthwhile to say up front, I don't want anyone to read verse 10 and walk away and say, you know, kind of fold their arms and lean back in the pew and say, okay, I get it. Uh, it's a hard and fast rule. Anytime you see a division in the church, that's a bad thing. I get it. No, that's not what it is at all. And we'll come back to that. Sometimes divisions are necessary. It's these types of divisions along these lines. But instead, you are to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Once again, he's not talking about complete uniformity of thought so that all the believers in Corinth are these robots that cannot have an original thought or anything like that. That's not what he's saying. Uh, it literally says that you all say or speak the same thing, but that's an expression, and it means that you be united. Be, I, I want you to all agree together, and this is what I want you to be in agreement and united about. Everybody in the church should understand that divisions along these types of lines are unbecoming of the church. He wants them to understand that, look, what, what you're doing, these little subgroups that you've got going on, you're, you're making these divisions based on worldly criteria. You're making these, these divisions and you're setting up these boundaries like the world would do. That is what I want you to stop. That, that's what I want you to be in agreement on. I want you all to recognize what you're doing as, as you make these divisions. Verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So, these are real issues. These are real people. This, this is not... Um, Paul's not writing up uh, fictitious stories about make-believe people. We're reminded, okay, Chloe's people. Now, we don't know who Chloe's people are, but they were real. They, they existed in the first century. Chloe was a real person. And this is how Paul received news that these divisions were, were happening and going on. It also reminds us that as Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, and this is just something good to establish right here at the beginning, this is a conversation that he's having with them. He's hearing things from them. They've heard things from him. They're writing to him. He's writing back to them. We're, we're jumping into the conversation, but this has been going on for a while. Now, Paul was in Corinth around 50, 51, or 51, 52. It says for 18 months, so a year and a half. He was in Corinth teaching, preaching, establishing the church there. 
he was called away. He, he moved around a little bit, eventually went to Ephesus for about three years, and it's from Ephesus that he writes this letter. But it's not the first one. It says he has written a, an earlier letter. 1 Corinthians 5.9 talks about an earlier letter. All right? So he's already written them once. And then uh, this one seems to be the second. And it's certainly not the last, because we know we have 2 Corinthians right around the corner. But it's part of the conversation. And as that conversation, Paul receives news from them in one of two ways. He receives oral report and letters. Oral report and letters. If we turn to chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now about the things he wrote to me about. So we know he's getting letters, and here's the oral report. So here's the oral report from, from Chloe's people. And subgroups have been identified and Paul identifies them for us in verse 12. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. Or I follow Christ. We need to break this down into these groups. Number one, Paul. Paul was the founder of the church in Corinth. So he was kind of like the, the planting pastor, the church planting pastor. He was their first teacher. And he spent a year and a half in there, so he had time to make a lasting impression in his letters, uh, and later on in, in 1 Corinthians, he's going to identify himself as their father, their spiritual father in Christ. He's going to call them his workmanship in Christ. So strong relationship with them. And we, we know that some of the people could have been claiming to be in the Paul group simply because he was the first. He was the first one there. Maybe they felt like they wanted to express loyalty to, to Paul. So they're going to stand by him even though he's, he's not there. So there is the Paul group. Next is Apollos. After Paul left, there came a man named Apollos. And Acts 18 tells us a little bit of a description. Acts 18.24 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. An eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Eloquent. Referring to speech. He's also described as being fervent in spirit. Okay. Later, in, after traveling to Corinth in Acts 18, 27 and 28, it states, He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul is doing a lot of the same things, or excuse me, Apollos is doing a lot of the same things that Paul did. He's competent in the scriptures. He's proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. These are all good things. These are all very good things. He, he's doing a great job. He's, he's preaching. He's teaching. He's, he's engaging in public debate. But he seems to have a little bit of a style difference. Uh, you notice that eloquent of speech, fervent in spirit, however we want to take fervent in spirit. So some of the church may have been claiming to be in the Apollos group because they just liked his style a little better. Maybe there were some that appreciated someone who was a little more fervent in spirit than the founding pastor. Then there's Cephas. This is Peter. This is Peter, the Apostle Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. So we're talking about the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter may have visited Corinth. In fact, probably certain he did. Uh, there are a lot of clues for example, Peter's mentioned in uh, chapter 322, along with Paul and Apollos, as someone they would have been familiar with, as someone who they have benefited from, most likely. Uh, he's mentioned in chapter 9, verse 5, and it seems likely that he, along with his wife, came and spent some time in Corinth 
and did some teaching there. So Peter has been an influential teacher in the church of Corinth. Some may have been following Peter for other reasons, maybe not fervent in spirit or a different style, but, you know, Peter, let's put it this way, Peter was an apostle before Paul was an apostle, okay? Peter's eyes locked eyes with Jesus. Peter was one of the closest disciples. Peter walked on water with Jesus. So that may have had a little bit to do with why some people were in, in the Peter group. And then Christ. Why is Jesus listed among these other men? And, and also, what's wrong with that? Isn't that a good thing, that there were people claiming to follow Christ? Or then the Christ group? The way that Jesus' name is mentioned, along with all these other names, seems to, to tell us that, yes, there was, in fact, a Christ group. There was a, a group, a, a splinter group, just like the other groups. So there were a group of people that were kind of saying, well, we're above all that. Uh, We are in the Christ group. I don't don't know what your problem is, but we're followers of Jesus, and so we're a little better than you are, and uh, in order not to take part in those divisions, we're going to form our own group, and we're going to stand apart from all of you. We're above forming groups. So in order to prove it, we're going to form a group. And we're going to be the Christ group. And then we're going to look down on the rest of our brothers and sisters. Of course, by doing this, Jesus is taken from Lord and head of the church, and he's reduced to just kind of a a group mascot. Uh, Someone that they're they're claiming to, to be their leader and theirs only, and everybody else is following somebody different. Again, divisions, divisions. Paul responds... By firing off three rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. He's trying to point out the ridiculousness of these divisions along these types of lines. And then in 14 and 16, Paul takes a little bit of a rabbit trail and says, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any one of you. And then he goes on and he names a couple people. And I think really the biggest takeaway from that little rabbit trail is the sensitivity of Paul's conscience. He's so concerned that he doesn't plant a seed of distrust or, or, or a seed that he's, that he's saying or teaching or writing something that's not true. So when he thinks of it, he goes back and he says, oh yeah, and also the household of Stephanas. But other than that, I don't know if I did. He's just so sensitive to the truth. And then in verse 17, I was not commissioned to go around baptizing people, but to preach the gospel. We talked about this last week. He's an apostle. The apostle's job was to bridge that gap between the incarnate ministry of Jesus Christ, where Jesus was walking around teaching and preaching and and doing all these signs and wonders and establishing who he was and doing the work of Jesus Christ. And then later on, we've got the New Testament church with with the canon, with the scripture already written, but we've got this in-between time where you've got this fledgling church, but no New Testament written. The apostles, that's what they're there for. They're filling the gap. They're taking the teachings of Jesus Christ. They're giving them to the churches. They're establishing churches. They're writing the New Testament. And they're reaching evangelistic, pristine ground with the gospel. 
So Paul, as an apostle, left the day-to-day of the running of the church to those that were appointed and elected for those reasons, the officers, okay? Elders, deacons, and that's how it continues today. We've got uh, teaching elders, ruling elders, deacons. They're the officers of the church. And that's how it continues until Christ returns. So Paul's saying, no, I'm not so much into that. I'm not going to be administering the sacraments, the table, and baptism. I am here to preach the gospel. Paul was the tip of the spear thrusting out from Jerusalem into the far reaches of the known world. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. So now he's getting to his point. And now he's connecting the divisions with the the problem and and the solution and why this is a problem and why he's addressing it. What matters is the content of the message. It's not who is speaking. It's not how they're speaking. It's what they're speaking. The church should not be divided over the messengers, but united around the message. That's that's what he's telling them in this passage. Now, wisdom, words of of eloquent wisdom, wisdom in in the New Testament can mean wisdom, eloquence. It can also mean um, skill, and that's the sense that it's used here. So when he talks about words of eloquent wisdom, he's not talking about giving out little chunks and wisdom nuggets, like you know something just kind of mined from Proverbs and, and laying out little things like that. No, he's talking about skill. Skilled speech. In fact, we could, we could substitute that phrase and we could say um, it's not with skilled speech lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. So skilled speech. So uh, clever speech, some trans- translations say cleverness of speech, um, rhetorical skill. Um, Paul's saying, I wasn't sent to preach here with, with high level speaking skills. That's not my job. That, that was not my commission from Jesus Christ. Uh, on a skill level, it's, it's equivalent of, of someone who's uh, an attorney or someone who's a lawyer arguing a case in court, trying to persuade a, a jury or something like that. On an on a, um, appeal level, it's that manipulative speech that really wows an audience with some slick wordsmithing. It's just that it's a combination of this powerfully persuasive speech and just kind of this smooth, silver-tongued, Speaker that is almost irresistible. Paul says, no, I'm not doing that. But others did. And and this is where it's helpful to understand the context. Others did, and it was sought after. And and people made a living off of this. First century, remember, uh, they did not have streaming services. They they did not sit sit there with the remote looking for something to watch. If they wanted entertainment, they had to go get it live. And so there were these professional orators, and that's what they did. They were these smooth speechers that were entertaining and, and, and uh, worth paying money to listen to and to be engaged in. And they produced emotional responses. They were kind of like the, the shows of the first century. And that, Paul says, is what I did not come to do. I did not come to preach Christ that way. Why? He says, because it actually empties the crosses of power. Well, how does it do that? He says, this this impressive, manipulative speech, this this clever speech, it persuades people, 
But, but that's it. It's, it's persuading people to become followers of Christ, but they're just kind of wooed and, and impressed into following Jesus. And Paul says, I don't want that. I don't want people to follow Christ because it's the popular thing to do. Or I, I don't want people following Christ because the, the speaker is so gifted that you know, by the end, he's got the whole, finger, whole audience standing up and two-finger whistling and fist-pumping. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't want that. That's, that's not it at all. I don't, want make, I don't want disciples to make decisions for Christ based on groupthink or an in-the-moment emotional response to what a powerful speaker has said, said. And he didn't want people praising him or coming after him. Paul was not looking for disciples. That's why the rhetorical questions, was I crucified? It's not me. Jesus. I want you to be disciples of Jesus. He did not want to be the focus. And I think we're starting to get the point. Paul didn't want people's commitment to Jesus Christ hanging by this thread of some kind of persuasive speaker because when the speaker is then removed or after a day or a weekend or a week or a month, after that initial wow factor has been taken away and the thread snaps, now there's no connection to Jesus. There's no real spiritual connection to Christ. It's just been a response. It's just been a, a persuasive manipulative thing. And they're, they're no better off than when they first heard the message. They're, they are still in their sins. They're still unforgiven. Paul wanted people converted by the power of the Holy Spirit as they heard an unadorned message about a crucified Savior. That's what he wanted. Not all that. And if we take a sneak peek at 1 Corinthians 3.4, we can see this is exactly what he's talking about. 1 Corinthians 3.4 says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And the answer is, yes, you are. Look, brothers and sisters, church in Corinth, you have created these divisions along lines that the world would create. You're using criteria that's, that unbelievers would use to determine what's important. Superficial, worldly reasons for these divisions, that's not how the church functions. That's, that's not how believers ought to conduct themselves. The church should be united with one voice and agree that, it, that in terms of gospel proclamation and the teachings of Jesus, the main thing when it comes to proclaiming Christ, is the message, not the messenger. That's the main thing. Personality, speaking ability, perceived popularity, none of those things should serve as the basis for these divisions. The churches not attach themselves to personalities, but to a personal savior. The church does not form up loyalties around the messengers, but around the message of the cross. The church should not be divided over the messengers, but united around the message. That's the main thing, the message, not the messenger. Well, when we look at this topic, we, I want to draw out a couple application points 
And the first one is this. I said we'd come back to it. Number one is this. Paul is not saying that all divisions in the church are inherently bad. Paul, Paul doesn't want anybody then, and, and we don't want anybody today, walking away from verse 10 and saying, whenever you see a division, whenever you see divisions in the church, you know, something's, something's wrong, that's not good. You need to be united at all times. No, that's not what it's saying. Sometimes it's a good thing. In fact, truth divides. And it should. When it comes to things like the divinity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, the inerrancy of Scripture, justification by faith alone. Those things should divide. Those things should divide because they're truth. There was a uh, mainline church in the Midwest that had been slowly drifting away from Orthodox belief for quite a while, and there were a couple of ringleaders. And one man in particular was trying to get people open to the idea that God is, is big enough to save anybody whom he chooses. Now, at first glance, that we agree with that. Can God save anyone whom God chooses? Absolutely, yes. But he came about it through the back door of other religions. He said, uh, God is love, and our God is full of grace. And I know that Scripture teaches that, that God loves unbelievers. In fact, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So do you deny that? And the person he was talking to said, no, I don't, that's, that sounds right to me. Okay. And then he would say, well, then who are you or who are we to box God in and say he can only act in one way? He said, I, I understand our belief is important, but I, I just think all those millions of people out there, he just said, I just got to believe that, you know, we can't rule out the possibility that God might save those people that are sincere in their belief. That denies the cross of Jesus Christ, and that is worth dividing over. That, that's enough to say, this is where we part ways. If you're saying people can be saved apart from the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, if you're saying it's possible to be saved apart from the cross, that's not Christianity. That's worth dividing over. In fact, church discipline uh, teaches us that of course there are some things worth dividing over. If we go to Matthew 18 and we look through that uh, Jesus' directions on, on church discipline and you know the escalating, if this, then do that, it ends with excommunication. It ends with barring some from, someone from the table. That's division. That's dividing over it. Uh, Martin Luther said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. Peace if possible, but truth at all costs. That, that sounds good. I think we can all get behind that. I, I agree with that. But it's, it becomes difficult when we start inserting people in there. When we, when we start putting people who we have relationships with. In fact, what if we said it this way? Relationships, if possible. Truth at any cost. Mm. Now it gets kind of tough. Because it's much more difficult to, to break and, and have division between people you have relationships with than just concepts and ideas. But there are times when doing the right thing will mean taking action that will result in division. So we don't want to walk away from 1 Corinthians 10 and, and think that that's a hard and fast rule that we should never see division. Sometimes it's necessary. 
Now, number two, the church is not to be divided along these types of lines based on superficial, worldly criteria. That's supposed to be divided over the messengers. It's supposed to be united around the message. So, so the personality of the speaker, the popularity of the speaker, the volume level of the speaker, or the animation of the, of the speaker, that, all that is really not relevant at all. And we might think, well, yeah, we know that. Or, well, that, that doesn't happen anymore today. I think we have to be pretty naive to think that that doesn't happen today. Now, if, if you're a mature believer in Christ, then, then this should be like Christianity 101. shouldn't be no problem. But just keep in mind, who is Paul writing to? Raw Christians. New believers. Now think about it today. If we've got somebody who's a brand new believer in Jesus Christ, if, if they've never been raised in the church, if they're raw, this may be a problem. This may be a, a stumbling block. It can be a real temptation for new believers to think about these uh, things along these types of lines. Because think about it, if they're a brand new believer, they've never heard this preached before, they've never heard this taught before, they've, they've been immersed in the world their whole life, and so they come to church and they might think, well, this is, this is also important, these things like um, you know, street value, or uh, uh, star power, or uh, attractability, or you know, volume, or how, how much you walk back and forth on the stage. And, that might be important from a new believer standpoint. And they might think, well, that must be the best. And, and that over there, that speaker who isn't so fervent in spirit, they, they aren't as good. It could be a real temptation. Because that's how it works in the world. Paul's telling the church, do you see how you're dividing over these superficial types of things regarding the messengers. You're, you're following them based on personality and style and emotional response rather than the content of what they're saying. Paul is telling these raw Christians, we don't do that here. That's not what we're about. I understand that's how it is in the world, but we don't, we don't operate like the world. As long as they're saying the same thing. Let's, let's make sure we understand that. These guys, Apollos, Paul, Peter... They're saying the same thing. They've got the same rock-solid message that's pointing to Jesus. So, yes, we need to understand that. As long, all things being equal, if the message is solidly on Christ, then these things don't matter. If, if they're not on Christ, well, that's a whole different story, isn't it? But, but Paul's, Paul's directing him back towards these subgroups, and they're all saying exactly the same thing. They are preaching Christ crucified. And he's saying, if they're all saying the same thing, don't worry about it who's more fervent in spirit, or who walked on water. He's saying, stop it. And you see why Paul is doing this. Because he cares for them. He loves them. And he sees the danger that is associated with that type of thinking. If those raw believers are attracted to the smoothest talker, um, with the most skill level or the loudest, most boisterous voice or the best looking or the one who can, can work a room glad-handing like a politician. If, if that's who they're drawn to, then they're going to be drawn to the, the best looking, loudest, smoothest talking person walking back and forth preaching heresy. That's who they're going to be attracted to. So that's why Paul brings this teaching. 
and says, you have the wrong thing for your main thing. The, the fact that you have these divisions shows me that you have the wrong thing for your main thing. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. And he's saying this with full apostolic authority. So he's telling the church, he said, if you're one of those people that, that thinks that's important, um, and you're not, you're not over here, where we understand that this, it's the content and, and Jesus, he said, you need to get there. Fast. You, you need to discard that old way of thinking. That's part of the world. That's part of your, the old man. You need to come over here and be a part of the church. Stop worrying about the messengers. Forget about the externals. Start paying attention to the message. And of course, the message is the gospel. Romans 5.1 Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to believers. Since we, as believers, have been justified, and that's that theological, doctrinal term that means declared righteous in God's sight. And the only way we can be declared righteous in God's sight is through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. He bore the penalty for our sin and he lived the perfect life and achieved that record of righteousness. That gets credited or imputed to us when we place our faith in him, when we repent and believe. Then and only then can we be declared righteous in God's sight. We, as those who have faith in Christ, have peace with God. True spiritual peace with God. And then there's that verse about what well, we were still sinners. Verse uh, Romans 5, 8, 9. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul realizes what's at stake here and he is not willing to let anything go. If he sees a problem, he addresses it because he cares for them. He wants them to put their faith in Christ and be focused on Jesus Christ, the gospel, biblical truth. Not be distracted by any of those things. He wants the main thing to be the main thing and he wants them to keep it the main thing. Because he knows if that doesn't happen, then they're going to face the wrath of God. Then their, their response is, is going to be superficial or they're going to be drawn away by the false teachers. Well, the new teacher didn't have to wait long. She was waiting at the desk of the seasoned teacher and she came back. And the older teacher said, sorry about that, you're ready to, ready to get going? And the younger teacher said, yeah, hey, what's, uh, what's with this plaque on your desk? And the older teacher said, oh, that, yeah, that's kind of funny. And she said, well, I, I just want to know, what is, what is the main thing? Or, or what, is, what is that all about? And the teacher said, well, you know, it's one of those things where it can mean anything to anybody. It's, it's whatever you want it to be. She said, yeah, but what does it mean to you? She said, well, can I be honest? She said, yeah, go ahead. All right. She said, well, for me, the main thing is just to make it to the end. She said, I'm four years away from retirement. She said, I, if I can just get through these students, if I can just put up with the administration, if I can just get in here and do my job and go home at the end of the day, if I can do that for the next four years, that's all that matters to me. 
That's my main thing. And whenever I get fed up, I just look at that sign and that helps me get through the day. And the other teacher went, "Uh uh-huh. And inwardly she was thinking, I don't think this is going to be my mentor. (laughs) And on the ride home, she she was driving home and she was thinking about it again. And she said, I I still like that saying, though. She said, but I'm not going to have that be my main thing. That's a little too cynical for me. I think my main thing is going to be I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that every student that comes through my classroom gets the best instruction possible. And I'm going to keep that the main thing until I'm done. Keep the main thing the main thing. That was her main thing. What's your main thing? Is it Jesus Christ, the gospel, biblical truth, or is it something else? Is it something more worldly? Is it something that that an unbeliever would also maybe have as their main thing? Is it something that in the grand scheme of things has no eternal significance? And when we stand before Jesus Christ, is is that main thing, is it really going to make a difference? Jesus Christ, the gospel, biblical truth. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, for your Spirit, for your Word. We thank you for this revelation that we have before us contained in your, in your, your the Scriptures, the, the canon of Scripture. Uh, Father, we're very thankful that we don't have to wonder or guess what the main thing should be. We are repeatedly told that we are to focus on Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the truth of Scripture. So, Father, we ask in faith that you would allow us to do that. Don't let us get distracted. Don't let us allow the the world's criteria and the world's values seep into our lives and and, and the church of Christ so that we start acting like the world and not as called out people of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.